Good evening. Today we do pick up the mantle that has been uh, started by Pastor Moody and then Pastor Moody, then Mauer last week. And we're going through the book of Exodus in these large chunks. So tonight we have chapters 7 to 13. 7 to 13. Six chapters. We've got the plagues and the Passover and the institution of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we've got a lot to cover. We're not going to read the whole thing out or else that would be the whole night. That would be probably a helpful thing to do. But what I want to do is just read from Exodus 7, verses 1 to 7, to set some context for us. This kind of gives a good overview of what's going to come in the chapters ahead. And then we're going to dive in at various points and uh, just explore this rich, rich text of Scripture. So hear the word of the Lord, Exodus 7, 1 to 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, to the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring them out and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let's just go before the Lord one more time in prayer as we come to his word. Father in heaven, as we seek to embark on these uh, monumental chapters in your word, Open our eyes, open our hearts to understand your greatness, your goodness, your judgment, and your mercy. Lord, would you do that by the power of your spirit? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Do you ever wonder if God is in control? If he really has the power to act A lot of times we doubt these things, especially when we come under difficulty or trial, when we've lost a loved one, when the child dies, when the test comes back and it says it is cancer, when a child goes astray and no longer follows the Lord. There's probably many other situations you're thinking of when you have been tempted to think, where is God in this moment? Does he really care? Does he really know? Does he really see me? Well, 
Today, as we continue this series in the book of Exodus, we come to a time where surely the people of Israel were wondering the same thing. They were wondering, where is God? He's made these promises to our forefather Abraham, but now we've been in slavery for over 80 years. The nation where we're living, they are exterminating our babies, our baby boys. They've killed them. Does God not see? Has he not heard? Does he not know? Where is God? And it's in this predicament for God's people that we gain insight into God's heart. His heart for the people of Israel and his heart for us. And it's instructive for us to realize where we are in light of this story. Because we have the advantage of seeing the big picture. We know how the story ends. And we have a sense of what God is doing, was doing, and will do. But the people of Israel did not have that kind of luxury. So all of us here tonight need to remember that we are in an enviable place of history. It is to us on which the end of the ages has come. We live at a time and a place where angels or where prophets long to look into these days. They found out they were just serving us. And what we're going to see tonight is that God's plan of redemption to rescue his people has never changed. He has one plan from before the beginning of time till the end of time. And at the end of this evening, This text is intended to bring us close to the Lord, to worship him, to stand in awe as we remember his judgments and his mercy. And that's what this text is about. It's calling us to stand in awe of God as we remember his judgments and his mercy. And that's kind of how the text breaks down for us here. And so the first part of our text, chapters 7 through 11, and a a short part of chapter 12, covers his judgment. And then chapters, chapter 12 through uh, two-thirds of the way in chapter 12, it's his mercy. And then at the end, there's this section of remembrance, the end of chapter 12 through chapter 13. So we're called to stand in awe of God as we remember his judgments and his mercy. So first, let's look at why we should stand in awe of God by looking at his judgments. And here is where we come to the plagues. Well, actually, before we come to the plagues, we come to a miracle. And so we, if you have your Bibles open there to Exodus 7, you see what the Lord says to Moses. He says in verse 9, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So here is the the situation. Pharaoh doesn't know who the God of Israel is. Josh Maurer helpfully showed us that through the text last week. He doesn't know who the God of Israel is. So Pharaoh's like, well, Show us a miracle. Show me a miracle. We'll see what you got. And Aaron takes his staff, throws throws it down, and becomes a serpent. But then, oddly enough, the magicians, 
who were priests of the Egyptian gods, they're able to do the very same thing. And they throw down their staffs and they become serpents as well. Well, what does Aaron's staff do but swallows up all the other serpents? Now, at this time, if an animal swallowed something up, something like this would mean that it took on the power of all the others that it swallowed up. And so here God was even showing that I have power over all of you gods. But what does it say about Pharaoh? Verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And as we go through these plagues, we're going to see that is a constant pattern. God is going to do an amazing sign, a judgment, and then Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. He's going to harden it himself, and God will even harden it as well. So what are the purposes of these plagues? Why did God bring these plagues upon Egypt? Well, he tells us in Exodus 9, if you turn over to 9, verse 16, he says, for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh. I could have killed you already, but I raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He has raised up Pharaoh and he has brought these judgments upon him to, yes, show his power to Egypt, but show his power and to have his name proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So in God's judgments, he gets glory. Another reason why he's brought these plagues upon them, we see from Exodus 12, verse 12. And this is specifically talking about the last plague, the, the plague when the firstborn is killed. But he says there, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So in these plagues, God is seeking to proclaim his name throughout all the earth, to show his power, both Pharaoh, Egypt, but the entire world and his own people. Because if you remember, this event of the plagues and the exodus is going to be something that the people of Israel are going to constantly come back to and need to remember, which we'll get into in just a moment. And so that, those are the, the overarching purposes of the plagues. So let's get into just a couple of them. We're, we don't have a, enough time tonight to really get into these in depth, but it is fascinating. So let's look at plague number one. The Nile water turns into blood. That's in verse uh, 14 of chapter seven. What's the purpose of this? By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 17, the Lord says, you see, Egypt had three gods associated with the Nile River. They had Osiris, the god of the Nile. They had Nu, the god of life. They had Hapi, the god of the flood. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. They worshipped these gods. It brought life. It brought prosperity to them. And through this plague, water into blood, God is judging their gods. He's ex executing judgments on those gods. But after all this happens, the magicians again, verse 22, they do it. They, they, you might ask, like, well, how could the magicians repeat these miracles? How could they do some of these same plagues? Well, it's a good point to just have this parenthesis and say, 
These, these gods, these Egyptian gods, whether they were demons or what, we don't know. But they were under the power of the devil. And the enemy does have power. And so these, the first miracle, the, the first two plagues, the magicians are able to repeat what Moses and Aaron do. And we need to remember as Christians that we are in a battle. That's why we're going through this series on the armor of God in the mornings. We do have an enemy who can work counterfeit miracles. You'll notice that he doesn't create anything, but he does counterfeit these plagues. He actually just makes their life worse (laughs) because he's multiplying the problems that they have. So we have this first plague, the Nile water turning into blood. Then plague number two, the frogs, chapter 8, 1 to 15. Again, the magicians repeat this. The Egyptians had a frog goddess called Heket. It was the spouse of their creator god, Kanum. And this plague showed that Heket was powerless to resist the Lord. He brought frogs everywhere, all over the place. And if you notice, it's, it's really interesting. Pharaoh says, he says, uh, okay, plead with the Lord with me. <laughs> Take these frogs away from me. And Moses says to Pharaoh, okay, uh, when do you want me to do that? When do you want me to do that? Now, if, if this was me, which is not, uh, if I'm Pharaoh, I want to be relieved of the frogs immediately. There's frogs all over Egypt. What does he say in verse 10? Pharaoh says, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow I want to get rid of these frogs. Um, We know Pharaoh was not the sharpest tool in the shed. So then we got these frogs. Then plague three, we have gnats. Most scholars think this is rather mosquitoes. You know, gnats can kind of be tolerated. Mosquitoes, think about large, large swarms of mosquitoes. This is one that the magicians cannot repeat. And they say, in verse 19, this is the finger of God. But what does it say about Pharaoh again? His heart was hardened. So all these plagues kind of affected everyone. Now we're getting into plagues that are affecting only the Egyptians. So plague number four is uh, flies. This makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Again, the purpose, so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, God says. So here Pharaoh agrees to let the Israelites go, and he asks for prayer again. But when he has some relief, he again hardens his heart and does not let him go. Plague number five, the livestock die. Again, Egyptian livestock die, Israel livestock lives. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Plague number six, boils. The Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. He doesn't listen to him. Plague number seven, hail. Chapter 9, 13 through 35. And this is where the Lord says to Pharaoh again, this is the purpose, that you may know that there is none like me, that I am God, that you may, to show you my power, that my, your name, my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is the first time in plague seven where Pharaoh says, I have sinned. He goes from who is the Lord to now saying, I have sinned. And Moses agrees to stretch out his hands and the hail will stop so that you may know the earth is the Lord. Verse 
29 of chapter 9. But again, Pharaoh sins again and hardens his heart. Then it comes the locusts. And the locusts devour the land. But heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart. You see a theme going on here. Then we have darkness. Three days of darkness for the Egyptians, light for the Israelites. But again, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart and he will not let them go. And then we have a tenth plague that's threatened. And this is the plague of the death of the firstborn. And you wonder, well, what is God doing here? And you might remember back to Exodus 4, starting in verse 21, where the Lord said to Moses, he's giving Moses these instructions of what he's to do. He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so now the Lord threatens that plague to happen. But Pharaoh's heart again is hardened. The Lord gave the Israelites favor inside of the Egyptians. And Moses by this time had become very great, the text says, before all the people. Chapter 11, verse 3. And so Moses to Pharaoh, he foreshadows the death of every firstborn in Egypt, man and beast, while explaining there's a difference between Israel and Egypt. So the, these are the, the plagues. And eventually, the plague isn't just threatened. The firstborn does die. So what do we learn from these plagues? Well, first, that nothing can thwart the Lord's plan. Not the most powerful nation on the earth, not the most powerful person on the earth, not a powerful media, a powerful culture, not the devil himself. Nothing will stop the Lord from accomplishing his purpose in this world. So lest you think right now in this cultural moment that we're in, in this moment where you're wondering what's going to happen, what's going to happen is the Lord will exalt his name on the earth and his plan cannot be thwarted. That's one thing we learn through these plagues. Second, we learn that there is no one like our God. There is no one like our God, and he will magnify himself both through his judgments, as we'll see in a moment, through his mercy. And then a third thing we learn from the plagues in this section is that judgment is coming. You see, these plagues, as bad as they were, were a precursor. They were a foreshadowing. As Josh has said earlier in this uh, series, this is an incomplete deliverance. It's also an incomplete judgment because this is a foreshadowing of God's ultimate judgments that are coming upon the whole earth. So how do I know that? Well, if you turn to the end of the story, if you turn to the book of Revelation, you can do that now if you have your Bibles. And here we witness the connection between these plagues and God's judgment that will be poured out at the end of time. 
I'm really indebted to Matthew Henry for the great Puritan for showing me some of these connections. And then once I saw them, it was just amazing to see what the Lord has done in his word and what he wants to reveal to us. So if you turn to Revelation 15, real quick, we can, we can just look at that. So we, then it says in 15 verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. So this is the, the, the culmination of judgment. And again, I'm not going into the whole book of Revelation. That would be another sermon. But I just want to show you the connection here. Look at verse 3. They sing, these are the, the redeemed of the Lord. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Moses sang this song in Exodus 15. But then the song of the Lamb, there's a, this combination. This, again, is hearkening back to the Exodus event. But if you turn to chapter 16 now, you look at these plagues that are poured out at the end of time. Plague number one, harmful and painful sores come upon everyone who bore the mark of the beast. That's in 16 verse 2 and worshiped his image. This evokes plague number six, the boils. So this, these, poor, these sores and these boils, uh, many think are the same. But again, it's not just boils upon the Egyptians. It's upon everyone who has failed, who, who, has, uh, who has worshipped the beast in, in its image. So it's much greater. Then in 16, 3 and 4, you've got plagues 2 and 3. The sea and all water becomes blood. So now it's not just the Nile River, but all water becoming blood. Again, symbolic language in Revelation we, we won't get into all the details, but, but that's what uh, is being evoked here. So that's plague one. Again, the Nile turning into blood. Then you've got 16, verse 10. The beast kingdom is plunged into darkness. This reminds us of plague number nine with the darkness. And then you see on uh, 16, verse 12, three unclean spirits like frogs. Demonic spirits performing signs. This reminds us of plague number two when the, flog, when the frogs were, were spread all throughout Egypt. And then you see this final plague, verse 21 of Revelation 16 there. Great hailstones, a hundred a pound each, fell from heaven, hearkening back to the plague of the hail. And finally, like Pharaoh, the people here in Revelation curse God and they, they fail to repent. So what do we learn from this little exercise? We learn that God has one unfolding plan throughout history. That his judgment is from the beginning to the end. And his judgment is coming. And we are to stand in awe of him and worship him, even as we see these judgments that are coming upon the earth. So Israel's story, it's not just Israel's story, it's also our story. And that should cause us to tremble because we never want to be subject to the wrath of God. But there's good news. As we witness the judgments of God, 
It, it caused us to stand in awe and to worship him. But now we get to the next section that thankfully amidst judgment, there is mercy. And that's what we see in this next section of our text, the mercy of God, starting in Exodus 12. So in the midst of the plagues, in, in anticipation of the final plague, God provides a deliverance for his people. And this deliverance comes through the blood of a lamb. The Passover here was an ep- epic event in all of Israel's history. It literally changed the way they calculated the date. So verse uh, 2 of chapter 12 tells us that it became the first month of the year for the Israelites. Literally changed the way you count time based on this event. Look at verse 5 of chapter 12. They were commanded to take a lamb without blemish, a male a year old. Verse 7, take the blood and put on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. Verse 13, this blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, the Israelites needed to be delivered from the wrath of God just like the Egyptians needed to be delivered from the wrath of God. They were guilty before a holy God and deserved just wrath as well. But the Lord, in his mercy, gives them the sign, this redemption, this lamb that is sacrificed in their place, shedding its blood to rescue them from God's wrath, so that when he sees the blood, he passes over, and he does not kill them. Sound familiar? It's because God's plan of salvation has never changed. He has been unfolding this plan patiently over time until at the fullness of time he revealed his man. A man born under a woman, born to us to redeem us from all the bondage that we were under. We're not under bondage to Egypt, but to sin. And this bondage is sure to lead to our destruction, sure to lead to a judgment from God. But God, just as he provided this way of escape, a sacrifice in their place, even now he has provided a greater sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, his very own son. You remember 1 Corinthians 5. When Paul says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So friends, like the Israelites, we need to be rescued. We need to be saved by the blood of the lamb. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 26, that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we see the judgment of God, and now we see the mercy of God. So what can we take away from this section on the mercy of God? Well, number one, just simply worship God. Exodus 12, 27 tells us after the people received those commandments about the Passover, what did they do? The people bowed their heads 
and worshiped. And that's what we're to do as well. We're to marvel at God's mercy. We're to marvel at his grace as expressed in the cross through the shedding of blood of Jesus Christ. So worship God, and then second, to respond. To respond, for the non-Christian, this means for you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, you are under the wrath of God. Not just the wrath that came upon the Egyptians, but the wrath that is coming on the whole world. And there is salvation in no one else but this one, Jesus. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the call to you is to trust in him. Confess your sin. Turn to him that you might have life. But for the rest of us, and many of us, I suspect here, do believe that. We know that. We love that, that Jesus has died for us. Let this warning from Scripture give us a renewed focus to share the gospel. It doesn't matter how good somebody looks, how good your neighbor looks. It seems like they have a good life, and they, they're very kind and friendly. Apart from the blood of the Lamb, they are going to face eternal judgment. And so let this be a renewed focus for us to share this good news. We don't know when the Lord is coming back. Remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. And then he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So let us remember afresh that during this time, these last days that we are in, every day that the Lord gives us is a day of mercy to bring many into the kingdom. So let us one, live for him, but also share this message. So we thought about the judgments of God. We thought about the mercy of God. And now we come to this period of remembrance in, in our text. And that's uh, from 1243 through the end of uh, 13, or 1316, whereabouts. And here we see that the Lord doesn't, isn't content with just doing these events, but he also wants his people to remember. Like I told you before, he's started a new calendar year even for this. He's instituted a Passover celebration that is to be repeated year after year after year. And now he is instituting this uh, feast of the unleavened bread. And so what is the Lord doing here? Well, he knows that we are a people prone to forget. He knows that we need to be reminded. Why do we come to church every Sunday? Because we're, we're leaky vessels. <laughs> we're leaky vessels. We're no different than the Israelites. 
Every week we have the same message. Jesus is Lord. Repent, turn to him, trust in him. He is your savior, your rock, your redeemer. We need to hear that every single week because we forget. And so through these institutions of the Passover meal, what are they doing? They're passing down from one generation to the next. When your son tells you, what is this for? This is what you are to say. And in the feast of the unleavened bread and the consecration of the firstborn. So God is saying, you know, remember what happened in Egypt. The firstborn were killed of the Egyptians. Your firstborn were redeemed. Well, guess what? Now they're all mine. The firstborn are mine. And so he, he uh, if it's a certain type of animal, you, you kill the firstborn, if otherwise you kill one to redeem like the sons and others. And the point is, is that God's people are his. He has, he has bought them with a price. And so this section here, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it is a section of remembrance. And what has the Lord given to us to remember? Not necessarily to continue the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover, but the Lord's Supper. And the Lord, the night he was betrayed, set this up. Just like he set up the Passover before the Passover actually happened. He set it up. This is what you're to do every single year. And the Lord, the night he was betrayed, he said, this is what you are to do. Take this. Eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood that was poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we're called to remember. We're called to tremble in this passage. Tremble because of the judgments of God. To rejoice because of the mercy of God. And then to remember what he has done. Because what he has done is good. It is awe-inspiring. It is the greatest news of all time. So the Lord has set these rhythms of remembrance for us. We want to remember. Well, we began this evening by wondering how we know that God is in control. Well, tonight we have seen afresh through the nation of Israel that God is in control. We have been drawn to look up and to stand in awe as we remember his judgments and his mercy. Because our hope for the future lies entirely upon the shoulders of the Lamb of Jesus Christ himself. Listen to what that great English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, says uh, just the other day. I, I read Morning and Evening Devotional. I don't know if you ever read that, but it's a, it's a wonderful devotional. An entry from yesterday on September 25th, he said this. My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done, in what he is now doing for me. So friends, let this message from the Exodus remind us that our hope is in the Lord. He is in control. He will be exalted through his judgments and through his mercy. So let us remember that together 
in fellowship with one another as we share the gospel to those who are perishing. His plan for this world is really mind-blowing. He's given us a part in his story. So let's worship him together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. You're so good to give us your word, to reveal your plan for us. And Lord, if we are honest, many times we do doubt. We do doubt that you are who you say you are. And Lord, we, we want to confess that now. We want to magnify your name to remember that you are the Lord and there is no other. And so we worship you. We honor you today in your judgments as we remember your mercy. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful to the end. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.